You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The National Park Service is in the midst of reinterpreting America's Civil War battlefields to reflect modern scholarship. Join us for a calm, intelligent, rational discussion with John Hennessy, Chief Historian at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military... Wait, this is supposed to be talk radio. Join us for an hour of ill-informed opinion and self-indulgent ranting as I recklessly accuse John Hennessy and the National Park Service of hating America and its history right here on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office in the Brewster Building at East Carolina University, overlooking acres of construction equipment as the annual summer search for the leak in the steam system is underway here on campus in Greenville, North Carolina. But, as always, not speaking on behalf of the university, criticizing it only uh, on my own uh, own hook and praising it, too, in this 100th year since the founding of East Carolina as a teacher's college. Uh, so, not speaking for them. They don't speak for me. Our guest speaks for himself. Certainly not for the National Park Service, I'm sure. And we will uh, each carry on in our own way, as always. Before we start with our guests, I want to thank all the listeners who braved last week's broadcast. I especially want to thank my guest, once again, George Bradley, who told us about events in Athens, Alabama in 1862. Those who did hear it know that uh, I sounded like a bad impression of Marlon Brando with laryngitis, uh, the worst voice I may perhaps have ever had. It, it hurt to listen to me. It didn't hurt to talk, but it was a, it was one bad voice, and I apologize for all who had to listen to it. Thank you for putting up with it. I will also say, uh, letting you know how things are, the, the fact is that morale is down this week at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. It's encouraging that so many of you listeners have written in to ask what happened to the show, where did it go. I've received email from all points uh, of the compass from people asking 
why did the show disappear, which, of course, it hasn't, as you know, since you're listening right now. Um, it's been an effort to try to get the word back out to the listening community that the show is still here, that World Talk Radio still exists, just no longer at the same email or some, same uh, Internet address it once had. I want to thank uh, bloggers like uh, Dmitry Rogov, uh, Kevin Levin, and others who are helping to spread the word, uh, thanks to the folks at the North and South Magazine Listserv, uh, people who inquired there and have helped spread the word of where we can now be found on your Internet dial. But overall, uh, the, the move uh, has gone somewhat less smoothly than McClellan's move to the peninsula in 1862. The... Uh, uh, the fact that I don't actually know who the new corporate overlords are or how to contact them, nor have I ever been in touch with them, is somewhat discouraging. The new website uh, lacks much of the benefits of the old website, the destruction of the old website, I should say, without any notice to uh, anyone at World Talk Radio. It was really unfortunate, and uh, all the, the pictures and, and words there are apparently lost. Uh, if anyone, for some insane reason, made a copy of that website, especially the archives, uh, and, and can let me know how I might download it from them, I'd be certainly grateful for that. Uh, it would be nice someday to be able to access the new website uh, and be able to put on the show titles once again. Uh, it could happen. Uh, I, I presume somebody somewhere must know how to do that. I'm reluctant to try to contact the people in charge myself because I, I suspect they may wonder what this show is about. It's not about um, paragliding. It's not about trains. It's not about sex. It's not about making money. So it really doesn't fit the paradigm of Internet talk radio. And uh, I, I'm concerned that if they actually got in touch with me, they'd ask me to start paying them lots of money every week to do the show, and that would be the end of that at this location. But in the meantime, we soldier on. Uh, since you're here listening, it means you've found the website. There is a download to desktop button on the uh, the new website, which apparently, if you click, will allow you to get back to the show more quickly without going through the schedule. There is now a show ID, so there's apparently a direct link to the show. You don't have to go through the front page of the site to get here. So there are things, there is progress. Things are looking up, and eventually we'll hopefully get all the archives reactivated and uh, return Civil War talk radio to its magnificent former self. And today will be a step in that direction because we have a very interesting guest with us, uh, John Hennessy of the National Park Service. John, are you there? Hi, Jerry. How are you? Good. How are you doing today? I, I think it's quite the fantasy to be in a situation where your boss doesn't have your phone number and you don't have theirs. It's a, it, a, well, there's a government worker's dream to me. <laughs> oh, there's a lot to be said for it, certainly. If um, if, if they knew, the, the folks at World Talk Radio uh, initially asked me to do this show some some three years ago, and they've been very supportive and made it possible, and uh, have have waived many of the usual fees to do a show like this in exchange uh, for which I've contributed a great deal of time, and uh, guests like you have contributed a great deal of time to make it possible. And it, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot talking to a lot of people, and I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. Uh, I think we do hopefully provide a service to people of interest with interest in the Civil War in terms of 
highlighting new issues or pointing out books you might not otherwise know of and separating uh, the worthwhile from less so in terms of what to read. But uh, I have no idea if the, the new cor- corporate overlords would have any interest in maintaining this kind of service. And I'm, I'm not going to poke that stick, yeah. <laughs> poke that ant. <laughs> Older on unseen. Exactly. But you work for a, a much larger uh, institution, uh, the National Park Service. You're the chief historian at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. How, how did you get a fabulous job like that? Well, it certainly wasn't by virtue of planning. I, uh, you know, it's funny when I got out of college back in, in the early '80s, I decided I'd get a job I liked for a summer before I got, went into the real world. Because, of course, everybody knows history is something you can't actually make money from or make a living from. And uh, so I went to work at Manassas Battlefield, and a summer turned into a year, and a year turned into five, and uh, I haven't gotten into the real world yet. So I've been very fortunate. Uh, being in the right place at the right time with presumably the right skills and and uh, have landed in what I think is, you know, just an incredibly interesting job, not just because of where I work, which is a wildly uh, interesting landscape, but also just the nature of the industry. I mean, uh, if you're interested in public history and interpretation, uh, being involved in the Civil War with the gaze of virtually everybody on everything that we do and uh, this massive battle for for the rights to the memory and the nature of the story going on, it's, uh, it is wonderfully interesting to be in the middle of all that. So did you, so you didn't foresee this when you joined up, had you studied history in college? Is oh yeah, absolutely, I, I have degrees in history and in management actually. Uh. Never figured I'd end up managing a historical park, uh, but I guess the combination worked out pretty well. And... Um, you know, it was. I've never been one for a plan. Uh, I still don't know what my career goal is, whether I've got it or whether I'm now heading to the downward slope of my <laughs> career so I can go back to doing what I really want to do someday. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just I, I, I find history interesting. I find preservation interesting in the Park Service. You know, the Park Service is a, is a big, very traditional organization, and uh, most people interested in history who work for the Park Service, especially interested in Civil War history who work for the Park Service, are not terribly interested in the organization. In other words, you know, these, uh, these, this big truck that we're on called the Park Service, everybody likes to ride on it. Not many people want to steer it. And, of course, if we're not careful, it could steer quite badly. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in not just in history, but also in affecting the organization that has stewardship for so many of these places uh, in a way that it will continue to care for uh, and about these places and and uh, tell the the story of this period of American history in a way that people can relate to, that's vivid, that does justice to history, uh, and that also does justice to the traditional role that we've played of, of uh, you know, I mean, we're part of part of the reason the parks were set aside was as a, as memorials to the men who fell at these places. So that's important as well. Now, you said, uh, in terms of driving the the truck that is the the National Park Service, I'm sure our listeners have followed it, it with some interest. What's been going on at the Smithsonian over the last couple months, where the the uh, truck driver Lawrence Smalls um, has has been asked to leave the cab. 
yeah. uh, or chose to leave the cab uh, one step ahead of the congressional boot. Um, after, some would say, driving that truck all over the highway, uh, collecting large sums of money in the process, but but perhaps losing sight of the mission. Um, who's in charge at the National Park Service? Well, we have uh, the director of the Park Service is, is a woman named Mary Bomar, who uh, actually used to be, until uh, her elevation to director, was the regional director for the Northeast region. She is uh, a Park Service person. Uh, she really does care deeply about the parks, and uh, and I'm not saying that because she's my boss. Uh, but it would be wise to say it anyway. Well, it may be, but but in fact, she's uh, she has always you know, been very uh, mindful of the well-being of the parks. She grew up in the parks professionally, which is not the case of many recent directors of the National Park Service. Uh, so she has a commitment to the organization. Uh, that goes probably a little bit deeper than some of her predecessors, and uh, so I think that the you know uh, I I think that the Park Service and Civil War Battlefield, to a larger degree than people realize, are uh, you know driven from by the passengers. I mean we you know maybe we're like the the car in the Flintstones where all our feet are running. Uh, and, and my point in saying that is that. The people on the ground, in the parks, in the field, have a great deal of latitude, far more latitude than I think the public thinks they do, in how the story is told. Uh, we have almost complete discretion on uh, you know, the exhibits we do, the programs we do. I've been in at Fredericksburg for 12 years and, and been involved in this business for 25 years, and uh, no one's ever told me what to do or what to say or how to say it. So I think, uh, and I, I think it's incredibly important uh, for the Park Service. It's, it's important for it to be led well, but it's very important for the people who work in these places uh, to begin to or to continue to to care about the preservation of these places uh, and have a commitment to doing to doing good history. Of course, the Park Service has a tremendous reputation and tradition of that. Um, I think we've been a little bit under siege, a little bit. Of lately, not us at Fredericksburg, but uh, but elsewhere, uh, which is all all the more interesting. I mean, people are at least are paying attention to what we do, and uh, they certainly tell us what what they think of what we do. Well, I want to get in into in, in just a moment some specifics about what uh, what's being said about the Civil War at the parks. But while we're still on the the Park Service uh, organization. The Park Service is not just Civil War battlefield parks, and many people, when they think of the Park Service, they think of Smokey the Bear and Yellowstone. Um, is there a division within the Park Service between the historical and the environmental or natural park? I'm not sure that there's a division in the sense that there, there's any kind of resentment, but there's certainly parallel professions uh, to a great degree. Uh, the, the Park Service is, by culture, a naturalist Organization. Although there are more historical parks than natural parks uh, in the system, certainly, uh, and many of those natural parks have wonderful human histories as well, uh, and have become more mindful of them. But still, you know, in the public's eye, we're a natural organization. I'm not sure that in the public's eye, history comes naturally to the National Park Service. Um, I've never, you know, once in a while, we've had short periods in our. In my experience uh, in the Park Service, where there have been some clashes between 
history and nature, if you will. You know, classic example uh, is the issue of clearing vistas or, or restoring scenes on battlefield, as Gettysburg is doing. Gettysburg has done a terrific job. Uh, and probably 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that would have been a very difficult battle. Uh, but I think there's come an understanding that while we manage all national parks uh, with an eye toward good stewardship of nature and such, uh, in a historical park, and especially in a, in a, in a landscape-based his- historical park like Fredericksburg or Gettysburg, there are times where the, the cultural component of the landscape ascends above uh, the natural values. And I think that, that we've hit a pretty good balance now. I have a sense that, you know, if we had the means to do some of the things that we would like to do, restore some of the scenes at, at Spotsylvania, for example, that, that still need some work, uh, we could do that uh, much more easily than we could have done that 10 or 12 years ago. So I think, you know, like all things, you, you go through reactions. There was, a, uh, I think, a kind of a naturalist reaction in the mid-'90s or so to a lot of the stuff that was going on in, in landscape-oriented parks, and uh, that, was, that has settled down, and I think we've got a pretty good balance now. I think, uh, and, you know, we... It, it, the logical extension of not cutting trees in some people's mind is not cutting the grass either to allow these places simply to grow up into to natural habitats and uh, uh, I think that that kind of, of attitude uh, which did exist at one time uh, has really rationalized a good deal I think we're, we're in a pretty good place on that account the natural versus cultural side of things well that's reassuring to hear it's a good place for us to take a short break We'll come back in just a moment to Civil War Talk Radio with John Hennessy from the National Park Service. We'll talk more about the parks and his park and Civil War battlefields in general when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. march to the left flank at 2.15 p.m., or the reasons behind the battle. Maybe some of each. We'll find out what the parks are trying to tell visitors when we return with John Hennessy of the National Park Service on Net, on here on Civil War Talk Radio. You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, 
you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. Smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. My guest today is John Hennessy, Chief Historian at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, run by the National Park Service. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about the Park Service and its relation to to all the national parks, the uh, natural as well as the historic parks, and the interaction of the two. Uh, John mentioned, among other things, the classic example of the cutting of trees at Gettysburg, which is underway right now. In uh, I was there uh, not too long ago, late 2006, and was really impressed by the improved view you can now get of the battlefield as many trees are being cut down. They were they were cutting timber on Big Round Top near Devil's Den when I was there, and uh, I assume that process is ongoing. By returning the battlefield to the, the vistas, the views that the commanders and soldiers had in 1863, it really improves, I, I believe, one's knowledge of, uh, of what the battle must have been like. John, you said, is there much of the same thing going on at your park at Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania? Well, we were fortunate in that, uh, of course, my predecessor in, in this position was Bob Crick, who uh, had a, really still does, have an unparalleled uh, commitment to the battlefields. And in many ways, although, uh, you know, he's, he's widely known as being a fairly conservative guy, he was, he was out front in a lot of things. And in the late 80s, uh, he, uh, along with a supportive staff, uh, initiated a major a uh, series of restorations at several sites, including the Bloody Angle, which was virtually in the woods, uh, Saunders Field uh, at the Wilderness, uh, down at Prospect Hill and on the Fredericksburg Battlefield. Major, major projects that, uh, that materially improved uh, those major sites. So our work, to a large degree, not entirely, there are still some sites within the park, uh, most notably at Spotsylvania, that need some help. Uh, but Generally, the, the, the big-name places uh, were tackled uh, before, long before I got here. And, in fact, it was the clearing of those sites that created something of the backlash that I mentioned before in the mid-'90s that we ran into a period where it was, it was really quite difficult. But uh, what Gettysburg has done is just, just amazing. Uh, you know, the power of those landscapes has enhanced uh, just 10, 20, 30-fold. Manassas needs treatment like that in a major way. I think they have some plans there. Uh, but, uh, you know, we removed 2.6 acres of trees at Chancellorsville last year at Fairview, and it's like a completely new place. So it's, uh, it's not sometimes like you need to do uh, clear-cutting of acres and acres and acres. Sometimes a little bit does a lot. But, of course, as you say, it, it's, one of the, it's something that has to be handled with public relations kid gloves because you're going to get people seeing... Uh, trees cut down on a park. And, and you know, the what? image of a, a park ranger or someone in a park service uniform and a chainsaw is is an oxymoron in a lot of people's minds. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, it, really doing it requires two things. And when we've done it, and we've done some limited clearing, 
Uh, one is determination. You have to have a little bit of courage. You have to be able to take people writing nasty letters to the newspaper or, or stopping by the side of the road. Uh, and secondly, you need to be able to explain to people why you're doing it. And uh, I think if you're careful, if you're, and, and among those two uh, currencies or, or characteristics, uh, by far the rarest is courage. Uh, it is a, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to do nothing than it is to do something. And uh, especially in government, because doing government, I mean, doing something in government can be just incredibly arduous. So, uh, you know, my hope is that the Park Service continues to develop employees, people, who have the courage to do things that sometimes people are going to get mad at, uh, but in the large scheme of things, need to be done for the public good. And I think that, you know, there's no superfluous cutting going on at, uh, at, uh, at Round Top uh, or at Gettysburg, and certainly none at our place. Uh, but the, the impact of those small projects on millions of people is, is just immense. In terms, um, let me ask you about another related but uh, upside-down version of this. What's been going on at, at Harper's Ferry? Um, well, it's funny. I, I, I got a, an angry email the other day from a, a, a person complaining that we had arrested three relic hunters at Spotsylvania oh, about two months ago. And they got a lot of press. Uh, he wasn't really complaining that they were arrested because they deserved what they got. But contrasting that with what's going on at Harper's Ferry, tell uh, our listeners about that for those who might not know. Right, with the developer who, yeah. who uh, one uh, weekend decided he was going to put in his utility lines across park land to reach his development on the other side. Now, I have to tell you, in fact, in the wake of that phone call that I or that email I got the other day, I I wrote back to the fellow and I said, well, I was only. I, I had some early conversations with the folks at Harpers Ferry. I don't know what's going on now. My suspicion is uh, that it's a little bit more complicated than what it sounds. I'm not so I don't have any specific knowledge as to what's going on. I can tell you this: I know Dennis Fry, who's the chief historian there, and Don Campbell, who's been the, his, the superintendent at uh, Harpers Ferry for you know probably 25 years, and there are. No two, there's no combination of superintendent and historian anywhere in the Park Service more determined to protect their park than those two. So, uh, you know, if there are some vagaries of law or government process in the works here, uh, that may be so, but I can assure you those guys uh, are going to do everything they can. Uh, so I, I wish I could enlighten you. In fact, I put in a call to Dennis this morning to to try to find out what was going on, not in anticipation of you asking, but just because I get asked, and uh, I was not able to get him. But, uh, uh, you know, if people have questions, send them an email, ask them. I guarantee you Dennis will tell you uh, straight up what's going on. So so the status quo as of now, here in May 2007, the uh, developers dug their lines. Uh, I gather they've been told to stop at some right. point. Yeah, there there is an ongoing battle over the the future, I think, zoning of the land uh, in question and whether it's going to be annexed. and I mean, several things going on there. Um, <laughs> what, I'm try what I'm sure they're trying to do, I mean, we had a case at uh, the Wilderness Battlefield several years ago that went unpublicized where we had uh, a park neighbor uh, do some archaeological damage to park resources. 
Uh, and that process took about two, three years to settle. Uh, so it's a long time. It is, it's arduous sort of stuff. So, because, you know, it involves literally every level of the Park Service, from, you know, the Dennis Fries of the world on up to the lawyers and even to the directors and sometimes Congress, because that's where the aggrieved always end up going. Uh, so it can be a, a little bit complicated. But, you know, if people have questions about that, you know, just, just write to, Dennis Fry, he'll, uh, he'll, I am sure, tell you everything that he can. Well, and, and this is a controversy where, within the Civil War community, certainly, uh, there was nothing but outrage toward the developers who would do something like this. Right. And in this conflict, uh, I can't picture anyone listening to this show who wouldn't regard the Park Service as the good guys in this battle. But I want to turn now to the, the interpretation question I mentioned at the beginning, and you alluded to a little bit. Um, you, the Park Service, some some years ago now, uh, announced that it would begin reinterpreting many battlefields, uh, basically changing the focus from exclusively military, from exclusively tactical, operational, and strategic, to including political and social factors. And this has also touched off controversy within the Civil War community in which some people see the Park Service as the bad guy. Right. Um, did, did I summarize that accurately as to what the change is? Well, I'm not sure that the Park Service ever made such an announcement. There was, um, uh, of course, a, a piece of legislation uh, passed, uh, I, I believe it was a funding bill with, with uh, language attached that instructed the Park Service to interpret slavery at all of its sites. Um, but, you know, I think that the uh, people who see this as kind of a political movement uh, don't quite understand what's been going on in the Park Service for, for quite a long time. You know, I think there's a really interesting question here. You know, the Park Service, of course, is the we're the inheritors of the, the veteran stories. And for many, many years, the, the, the National Park Service has told that those stories very faithfully in the fashion that the veterans wanted them told, oftentimes kind of mimicking them almost in our methods and in our, our language and in our, our perspectives. Um, but I, I think that in the last 20 years, certainly we've had a tremendous amount of scholarship that's looked at, at just how the history of the Civil War has been managed, manipulated, uh, massaged, you pick the, the verb that goes with it, over time. And I think that most historians recognize that, that probably there is no uh, period of history or no moment in history or event in history that has had its memory and legacy more massaged, more, more manipulated, uh, towards not necessarily nefarious ends, certainly, uh, but I, I think when you're in the industry, it's important to kind of step back and understand how your industry has involved. And the industry, of course, is, is history and public interpretation. And I think there, there's been a growing understanding that, that there's been kind of a memorial, uh, memorial-esque approach toward the interpretation of civil, the Civil War in America, uh, where, and I'm sure you've talked about it often on your show, 
you know, the, the, the focus on the military experience and the details of the military experience at the exclusion of other issues that were more difficult. Uh, you know, kind of this, this, this shared vision of, of nobility and, and uh, honor, uh, which facilitated a reconciliation of a nation, which is all very important stuff. Uh, but I think for for us today, uh, as we've come to understand better how our industry fits or has been affected by kind of historical thought over time, uh, I think it's important for us to kind of stand back and say, well, are we historians, which is to say that we're always trying to understand, we're always trying to um, learn more, we're always trying to make connections of why whatever it is that we're writing or thinking or speaking about matters. So are we historians or are we memorialists who are committed to a specific memory of an event uh, whose charge it is to foster and further that memory? I think the answer to that is that we're a little bit of both. I mean, we are a public agency uh, that does the public's business. And clearly, part of the purpose of Civil War battlefields uh, is to memorialize the events that happened there. But at the same time, uh, I think Americans expect, uh, and I know that I expect, uh, the Park Service to do good history. Um, and I don't think that the, the ideas that we're talking about here are any way incompatible. Uh, the idea of good history and and also respecting and honoring the men who fell fell here history does not this good history does not necessarily dishonor anybody um, it gives us greater understanding of where they were coming from why were they were here I think the biggest difference is not you know nobody in the park service is suggesting you know as I often hear that that you know we're doing Confederates a disservice by suggesting that by accepting or or ever articulating the idea that the Civil War had something to do about slavery. Well, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a historian working in the world today who doesn't suggest that the Civil War and slavery that there was a pretty powerful nexus there. Um, but uh, you know the uh, the that nexus does not mean uh, that necessarily. Southerners were bad. Uh, I think you have to be far more sophisticated uh, than that. People do things for lots and lots of reasons. And, you know, for us to, to look at this event only through the perspective of white men in uniform greatly diminish, diminishes, really, its impact and power on the American people and on the American landscape. So, for example, at Fredericksburg... You know, here we have a battle fought in the middle of December uh, that includes the first bombardment of an American city by Americans. It includes the first looting of an American city on a whole scale base, wholesale basis by Americans. It includes, probably up to that time, the largest refugee experience in the history of America uh, as civilians from Fredericksburg fled. Now, I don't think there's anyone who could reasonably suggest that the civilian story at Fredericksburg is not an important part of the story. Clearly it is. It, it, it signals that the war is changing, uh, that civilians are in the crosshairs. So we're gonna, I think most people accept we talk about civilians. Okay, 
half of the region population in 1860 was slaves. So if we're going to talk about civilians, we can't. Ex- why? Why would we even consider excluding half of the half of that population? And the point is that the war meant something very different for the for slaves. Of course, when the Yankees arrived opposite Fredericksburg and for the first time, you know, and civilians, white civilians, started to flee. You know, John Washington, a slave who was working as a bartender downtown, he didn't he didn't run down the street. He ran up onto the rooftop to see the Yankees coming, because for him, the arrival of the Union Army meant something completely different. For him, regardless of what you think about the cause of the war or whatever, the war was about slavery, because for him, the war meant the end of slavery, and it did. He crossed to the Union Army that afternoon. All of that stuff is just enriches the story incredibly. Uh, not only does it enrich the story incredibly, it does historical justice. It also has the added benefit of giving visitors other entry points into our story. You know, the and, fact yeah, is... I'm going to interrupt you here for sure. a second because we're going to take a short break. Okay. But we're going to come back and talk more about the expansion of the story at Fredericksburg and other parks. Our guest today is the historian at Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania National Military Park, John Hennessy. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. The one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with the chief historian from the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, John Hennessy. We talked in our last segment about the changing interpretation of Civil War battlefields, and we got to discussing the events at Fredericksburg itself, as John pointed out, it was one of the largest, if not the largest, refugee experience in United States history up to that point, as civilians fled before the Union Army. 
but an experience interpreted or experienced differently by white and black civilians in Fredericksburg, by free and enslaved. So should these stories also be part of the battle story? Or do visitors, uh, do certain visitors at least, just want to hear about uh, Burnside's men going up the hill, about Jackson holding the flank, about Lee gazing fondly, uh, sadly over the casualties and saying it is well, the war is so terrible, or we should grow too fond of it. Uh, what is the Park Service's role? So, John, uh, you were telling some, you were sharing some of the different perspectives of, of civilians caught up in this. Uh, is, is this working? How are visitors responding? Well, I, I think it's important to gain some perspective on what really we're doing. We gave somewhere around 1,400 public programs at the park last year. I think exactly 27 of them dealt with civilians. Uh, my point is that we're not supplanting the traditional types of programs that we do. We will always be about the battlefields. And the Park Service will fail in its charge to do good public history the day it stops using the physical resources, the Sunken Road, Marie's Heights, Stevens House, Innes House, Town of Fredericksburg, all of those things, to tell the story and, and goes to, you know, I, I often say, if, if whatever you're doing in a park can as easily be done in Minnesota, then it's probably bad interpretation. And our charge in the tradition of the Park Service is to ensure that what we do is derived from the resources that we have, and we use those resources on a as a lens into these kind of these bigger issues. Is it working? You know, you're right. There are a lot of people who don't expect that sort of interpretation. We last year did premiered a new film on the civilian experience at Fredericksburg, and we did. We got some commentary that, well, we shouldn't be doing that. Um, well, I, I disagree, uh, but we have not diminished the amount of traditional interpretation we've, we're doing. You know, our staff, many of your listeners know uh, of our staff. I mean, some of them are, are nationally famous. At least one of them has been on your show before, Don Fons. I mean, these these people are steeped in military history, excellent at it. Uh, that's what they do. That's what they're continuing to do. Uh, I think that uh, doing good history does not require a wholesale change uh, in what we do. It requires the addition of sometimes little bits, sometimes larger bits of context and history, all of which adds meaning to uh, the places and the stories that we tell. I think it's very interesting that, that what you're doing is so small statistically in terms of, of adding other aspects of the story. You said uh, you know, only a few out of hundreds and hundreds of programs uh, relate to the civilian story. Right. The, uh, and yet I, I, I suppose I can see where the concern from some aspects of the Civil War community might come from in that, in academia at least, uh, the the long-standing prejudice against military history is such that uh, you can you can do well writing a dissertation or a uh, university press book 
on a Civil War topic if it is about civilians or uh, uh, something to do with slavery directly or uh, most fashionably today with gender roles. That, that will certainly get you a, a university press contract. Whereas a standard drum and trumpet uh, who shot who battle book will sell many more copies, but it won't get you status within the academy. Right. And I, I wonder if some some of the buffs are afraid that the park service is going that same direction. Uh, not not just buffs, not just visitors, staff too. I think that uh, you know, in the aftermath of in the late late nineties, early part of this. Uh, decade, uh, there was a lot of fear that because of some of the rhetoric that was coming down from above, uh, there was a lot of fear that, you know, every visitor center would have, you know, quotes from Frederick Douglass in it or, you know, this or that kind of a generic approach to history. And that's a, that, that I think, I don't think was a realistic fear, but it certainly is a legitimate fear. Um, the trick is and the key is, and I think I can speak for Virtually all of the uh, my counterparts in the Virginia parks uh, is to focus people's attention on the resources, the places that we have, but to use those places to tell the biggest story that they tell. Um, but we're not we are not abandoning military history. People say that all the time, uh, and you know if you come to our park. Uh, if you choose to do something other than military history, we hope that there's an option for you there. But there is, I, I think it's safe to say, there is never an instance where you have no choice but social history or, or whatever. Um, so it's, it's the, 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 the argument really has little to do about the substance of what we do. I have found at our park, we've actually had relatively little controversy but have probably done more than many parks in this realm because it makes sense. I mean, if you do a, an exhibit on the Chancellor family's experience at Chancellorsville, uh, it's not out of place to mention that, you know, slaves were the dominant residents in that household uh, and what happened to them during the war. I mean, that, it only makes sense, and people see that and read that, and, you know, they walk away and say, oh, okay. Uh, I don't think that done right on the ground, uh, I honestly believe you've got to really look, try hard to be uh, unhappy about uh, kind of a, a bigger story. If you're not interested in it, then it's very easy to pass over that exhibit or, or not watch that film. Or, you know, there are plenty of other options here. We will always be dominantly about battlefields and dominantly about the military experience. Um, can, can I, I find that interesting? Uh, I, I visited the uh, Fort Sumter Visitor Center uh, not too long after it opened, uh, I don't know, five or ten years ago. And uh, I talked to two rangers there at the time who exemplified this discussion you're saying uh, uh, within, within National Park Service personnel. Um, one was quite unhappy with the, the new exhibit, and one one was much more satisfied with it. The one who was unhappy wanted the exhibit to begin in April 1861 right. and to be about the battle at Fort Sumter. Right. And this, I think, is, shows the flip side of, of this kind of extremism. 
because as battles go, Fort Sumter's not really that much. I mean, it's, you got your bombardment and you're done, and nobody gets hurt. Um, you know, I, I think we risk. It, it, it's only interesting because it's the beginning of the Civil right, War. Right. I mean, what what does it matter? I mean, that that's what that's the question. I mean, why why do these things matter? And you know, the idea that the soldiers were kind of apolitical and and unmotivated by political things is, I mean, that's just silly. I mean, no no serious uh, student of history really believes that. Uh, I don't think. And the idea that we shouldn't talk about why this massive loss of human life, this incredibly destructive event, happened, why it, why these individual battle, battles mattered, uh, and the legacy left, they left behind just seems just insane. It's almost like going to Auschwitz and focusing on the mechanics of how the ovens and the crematoriums work without asking the question, well, why? Why did two million people die there? Uh, so really the I, I think, you know, the the post-war desire to focus on those things that were comfortable is, you know, still kind of carries on. I found something. I did a talk recently to the Richmond Roundtable uh, on the evolution of interpretation in Civil War parks. And I, in going through the early records at Fredericksburg, the exhibit planner at, at the Fredericksburg Battlefield in 1936 was questioned, why is there not more context? And the exhibit planner wrote in response, I don't have it in front of me, but essentially he said that context is in the eye of the beholder, uh, that the only sure, that we must deal only with certainties, and the only certainty that we can deal with on a battlefield is death. Hmm. Now there's a, there's a perspective that perfectly reflects, you know, kind of the post-war, the hundred year up to the centennial, uh, perspective on the Civil War, focus on loss, focus on sacrifice. But you know what? We learn more, we understand more, uh, and I think as we as public servants understand more and learn more, it's part of our responsibilities to pass that along to the public. If they choose, I mean, we're not trying to ram anybody's political agenda down anybody's throat. As I said, nobody's ever once told me what to interpret or how to interpret it at Fredericksburg, not once. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's ours is a commitment to good history that is site-specific and related to the resource that we tell. And, by the way, I will also point out that in 1989, Congress mandated in legislation that we tell the civilian story. So this is not a 2000 sort of thing. This has been going on for a long time. Let's. We've only got a few minutes left. Um, in in uh, just a few minutes, what what does the park look like? This is not like Gettysburg, where it's all one big piece of land. Um, can you give a, a rough idea? Yeah. Uh, who's, who's uh, let me here? say this. I'll say something startling. In 20 years, the one of our four battlefields worth visiting will be Spotsylvania Courthouse. The others will be so diminished that having the kind of traditional battlefield experience we've all come to, to know and appreciate will probably be impossible. Uh, these parks, these battlefields, these four, along with some others, but these four were, were the first partnership parks in a way, and that the, the, the focus was on acquiring the physical remnants of battle, the earthworks, the roads, the house sites, with the assumption that everything in between, 
back in the 1920s and 30s would remain always as it was. And our battle at our battlefield has been to rectify that misassumption and acquire land, much of it where the fighting actually took place, not land, I mean, much of the fighting took place between lines, not along the earthworks and such. Uh, and so we've been in this unending battle, but the fact is that Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, and Wilderness are very linear. They tend to be very narrow, uh, and they also tend to be uh, very vulnerable. I mean, the same re- great, the same roads that generals used are the same roads that uh, show up in your traffic reports on Monday morning these days. Uh, so it's a very difficult environment. Compare this. Spotsylvania, 1,500 acres. Fredericksburg, 1,500 acres. Uh, Wilderness, about 3,000 acres. Chancellorsville, 1,500 acres. Monocacy, well over, I believe, 3,000, about 3,000. Wilson's Creek, 4,500 acres. Gettysburg, the greatest enemy of our four battlefields is their nearness to each other because the political reality is that a national park, a battlefield park, is only going to be so big. If they were 35 miles apart, They'd all be their own national park, and they'd all be three times the size they are now. So they're inherently flawed, uh, and it's probably in many respects a fatal flaw, especially for Fredericksburg, uh, Chancellorsville, and perhaps the wilderness, less so the wilderness. Um, but that's what I do most of the time. Is you know We've talked about interpretation, but the fact is most of my job involves dealing with development and developers and roads and uh, you know fighting preservation battles, many of which are comp- never become before the public at all. Um, you know, we don't win victories, we minimize disaster. For for listeners who want to help the uh, fight the good fight, are there organizations they can contribute to? Well, there's um, the, the best thing that people can do, there are several things people can do. One of the most important is to watch over the National Park Service. Sometimes we need your help, sometimes we need a kick in the butt. Um, and both are very much appreciated when they come along. And we know when we need a kick in the butt because sometimes we're not able to do all that we should or needs to be done. Uh, So watch over us, certainly. Um, I would also suggest, you know, the only way to preserve land is to buy it. We've shown that. We can argue about zoning. We can argue about uh, land use patterns, cluster development, all that stuff. But the only sure road to preservation and protection of the park is to acquire additional land. Uh, and there are two groups that have been very active in the Fredericksburg area. The Central Virginia Battlefields Trust, I think by acclamation, the greatest local lands trust working in the Civil War field anywhere, um, based here in Fredericksburg, uh, CVBD, CVBT.org, uh, and then, of course, the Civil War Preservation Trust, which is located in Washington, the bigger group. They also have been very active, spending literally Uh, Well, they're over $10 million, certainly, uh, in the Fredericksburg area. So uh, those organizations certainly need your help, uh, and we need your your, uh, watchful gaze over us. Well, John, we've come to the end of our hour, too soon as always, but it has been fascinating to hear about uh, what's going on at the battlefield parks from the inside, and I do hope our listeners will uh, contribute to the Central Virginia Battlefield uh, uh, trust and the Civil War Preservation Trust, and that they'll come and see see you at the parks. Well, we hope to see them all, and uh, thanks very much for having me on. And listeners, thank you very much for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.